Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 126, Self-Assertion and Self-Abandonment. And this week on the podcast, I want to do something a little bit different. I want to do sort of an autobiographical conversation about some things that I'm reading right now as they relate to the ideas of self-assertion and self-abandonment. And a book that I have recently begun reading and I'm not even finished with yet, I want to read a few paragraphs from this book and talk about several observations that I've made about my own personal life as well as my experience of the church growing up and right on into the present and then try to piece together a few ideas that I have at least in my own mind about where I said we were headed in the podcast several weeks ago. I want to explore this relationship between our own personalities and the specific people that God has made us to be and how that relates to Jesus's call for us to deny ourselves. And I've talked about on the podcast about my own exploration in wanting to discover the answer to this question. And so what I want to do on this week's episode is simply bring you up to date regarding where I am in that exploration. This episode feels a little bit uncomfortable for me because it's not as if I have figured something out and now I want to tell you about it. I'm simply going to invite you into the process that I'm currently going through. And therefore, this is not me speaking from experience or expertise. Rather, it's simply presenting something as I am now bringing this into my way of thinking. And it makes sense to me and it is something new to me. But I thought it would be helpful possibly to bring you along my thought process and my experience um, with what I'm learning and what I'm attempting to apply to my own life and see if we can get somewhere together. So that's all we have by way of introduction. Let's just jump right into the discussion. Now, as I shared several weeks ago on the podcast, I am personally interested in this relationship between living into and learning to understand the specific person that God has made each one of us to be and how that fits together with Jesus's call for us to deny ourselves. And one of the main reasons that I'm considering this is because for so many years of my life, I never even knew this was a reality to work through. And that may sound kind of strange to you. And let me see if I can explain what I mean. Um, As I shared several weeks ago on the podcast, I'm pretty certain that I am an Enneagram 9. And an Enneagram 9 is someone whose overarching heading is the peacemaker. But the, the 9 has an ability and a gifting to empathize with people, to step inside their shoes and to see things from their perspective. And so an, a peacemaker, as you might imagine, even a mediator in some type of a, of a disagreement or conflict happening between two people is capable of seeing the perspectives of each of the parties involved and is thereby able to help bridge that gap. And, and I love doing that. It, it comes naturally to me, not that I'm overly gifted in it, but it's always on my mind. How can I make these two disagreeing parties come together and find common ground. Well, one of the tricky things about that for the nine, when you don't know that you're a nine and that that's what you're doing because God's made you that way, nines have this ability to so engage with the other person and to see things so closely and so clearly from another person's perspective 
that they have a hard time knowing what their own perspective is because they tend to just adopt the perspective of the person they are they are relating with. And, and in Enneagram studies, they, they call this merging. And merging is this failure to know where you stop and another person begins. And <clears throat> what's interesting about this, being a nine and being raised <clears throat> um, most of the time in my growing up years was by my mother, who's also a nine. Um, and I think both of us were fairly unself-aware regarding um, the benefits and blessings of being that type of personality, but also the weaknesses and the, you know, the, the drawbacks to that. And that is that boundaries as they exist um, were never really a thing that I understood growing up. I mean, it sounds kind of embarrassing, but I'm kind of over being embarrassed. Um, so I'll just tell you, I didn't even know what a boundary was until my late 30s. And even then, um, it was a total shock to me that people live this way and, and being filled with boundaries. And I remember um, getting into conversations uh, with my wife, for example, who is a very just assertive person, you know, expresses what she wants, this type of thing. And I, I didn't know that a person could do that or that that was allowed within the Christian faith. I had almost entirely defined my Christian faith by my willingness to deny myself. And so for me, self-awareness has taken on a large, large um, ideas to recognize that I need to, first of all, get to know myself and then ultimately embrace and accept <clears throat> the self that I am in order for there be, to be a self in which to deny. And so these have been fairly transformative ideas for me in recent years, but until I understood something about boundaries and until I understood about being a real self and not simply merging with every other person that I was around, you know, when you do that, when you merge with another person's ideas and then begin to adopt them as your own, you're doing it to quote unquote, keep the peace. But what's actually not at peace is my own internal desires, wishes, and longings because I push them down in order to merge with the person who has their own opinion. And so what I end up doing is I don't ever assert my own views. I don't ever assert my own opinions because if I feel that somebody will not like those opinions, then it will disrupt the harmony that I so desperately crave as a nine. And so I'd rather squelch my own desires than bring them up and have them be you know, rejected or challenged or disagreed with or whatever. And the problem that I personally experienced was that when I thought I was just suppressing my desires and not bringing them up, I would say to myself, I'm doing a good thing because I am denying myself, which is what Jesus tells you to do. When the reality is I had spent large portions of my life incredibly frustrated and I didn't understand why. In fact, when I would bump up against my wife in conflict as an assertive person, I didn't know how she was, you know, to be assertive and to tell me what she wants and to tell me what she doesn't want and what she doesn't like or what she doesn't want me to do in interactions with her. I would receive her assertiveness as domineering and I saw it as an entirely negative thing. I saw it as an anti-Christian posture. You're not allowed to assert yourself. You're not allowed to tell me what you want or tell me what you don't want. And it sounds so silly to say it now, but this was my life. And it was a very upside down um, way of living. And e even growing up in the church, 
I do actually remember through several years of my read through the Bible in a year plan, I, I remember distinctly reading many of the Psalms and realizing that I personally never knew how to connect with the Psalms because the Psalms are filled with all sorts of emotional upheaval, downheaval, you know, or <laughs> downheaval, that's not really a word, but ups and downs and highs and lows and some of the Psalms are just gut-wrenching, like they're, they're brazen, they're brash, they have the audacity, it seemed to me, to be angry with God. And I remember looking back over my life and thinking, my life has been pretty relatively peaceful. I don't really have reasons to be angry at God. I mean, good Christians shouldn't really be angry at God for any reason. So how do I relate with psalmists who express their deep anger at the injustice they see in the world or what they do not see God doing? And I remember being very flustered by that. I, I don't understand how a person can be angry. Isn't it bad to be that way? And in recent years, um, due in large part to the help of the counselor that I've been seeing for the last year and a half, is this recognition of learning about myself and learning about self-awareness, gaining some perspective on who I am and what that means for the world. But a about a month ago, my counselor uh, recommended a book to me. And of course, you all know I love to read, so I'm kind of always looking for an excuse of some sort to buy a new book. But he mentioned a book called The Covenanted Self by Walter Brueggemann, who is an Old Testament professor. And Brueggemann is kind of discussing this idea of covenant. And when I shared with my counselor the question that I raised for you for the podcast – um, and that is how do we relate with ourselves and knowing when to assert the self we believe God's made us to be versus denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following Jesus without hesitation. My counselor just said, you need to buy Brueggemann's The Covenant itself because this is exactly what the book's about. He said, it's probably in my top five uh, books right now of all time. And so I, I've picked the book up and I began to read it and it's making connections for me that um, is sort of beginning to answer all of the conundrums that I just spent the last five minutes explaining to you on this episode. And so what I want to do is I've taken a few notes from the first couple of chapters, and I kind of want to focus in on, on chapter two in his book, but I just want to read several paragraphs, and then I want to kind of tie this back together. Um, I may let you know when I'm no longer quoting from the book and when I'm going to make my own commentary just in case something pops out that I feel like I want to comment on, I'll, I'll notify you of that. But what I want to draw your attention to, and, and Brueggemann is going to explain this really well, is what he calls self-assertion and self-abandonment. And that's really where I've taken the title of this episode from, but it's both of these ideas together and the relationship that Brueggemann sees them taking both in the way we relate with God and in the way we relate with one another. And what I'll say, if I were to say to you about the Psalms, is that I realize that for a large portion of my life, I do not know how to relate with God in the lament style of way that it, it shows up in the Psalms. Like, I have never understood how a person can lament to God. Like I would always just, well, God is always good. He's only ever good. There's no, you know, my job is to submit to his goodness, whether I understand it or not. And Brueggemann is 
about to raise some interesting perspectives and use the Bible to support it, talking about what it means to assert oneself in relationship with God, as well as abandon oneself and the proper relationship between the two. Um, Again, I haven't finished the book, so I don't have a completed thought here, but just raising this issue has been pretty profound for me, and I am still working through it and probably will be for months and months um, going forward. But hopefully this will become a new part of the way I think, and I would invite you to at least consider whether what Brueggemann is talking about here is true to your own reality, your own experience, but also whether this is true to reality itself. So again, allow me just to read. I'll tell you when I'm quoting from him, and then I will maybe make some comments as I go. So, quote, Spirituality is the enterprise of coming to terms with either God or neighbor in a way that is neither excessively submissive nor excessively resistant. The Psalms, for example, can be read as a dialectic of self-assertion in complaint and self-abandonment in praise. Theologically and emotionally, self-assertion precedes self-abandonment. For there is no self to abandon or to pledge loyalty unless that self has been claimed and valorized. Thus, I suggest that covenanting and spirituality consists in learning the skills and sensitivities that include both the courage to assert self and the grace to abandon self to another. Such covenanting recognizes that both parties have claims to make and that one must learn the right time in which to pursue and honor each claim and then have the confident unencumbered freedom to move in both directions. My sense about much of theological education is that we tend to be either piously deferential or brazenly self-preoccupied, but neither alone leads to a true self nor to a faithful covenant. Now, it's a tricky thing to know when in the presence of God to sound self-asserting complaint and when to offer self-yielding praise. Covenanting is to know when to do what. In parallel fashion with the neighbor, it is right to assert one's freedom, and it is right to yield one's freedom for the neighbor. The demanding work of covenanting is to know when to do what, and that requires a thoughtful, disciplined practice of negotiation. The self is a conundrum of fears, hurts, and hopes that most often are in important ways unsettled, conflicted, and under adjudication. And if we do not recognize that they are unsettled, conflicted, and under negotiation, it is likely because we do not know ourselves well enough. Brueggemann goes on, Lament in the Psalms concerns the full assertion of self over against God, and praise concerns the full abandonment of self to God. This drama of assertion and abandonment is indispensable for life with this God. Moving back and forth between lament and praise means always shifting positions, getting up out of our seat and changing roles. Each of us, I imagine, would prefer one of these roles to the other. Conventionally, many of us who have learned to submit to authority would rather sing hymns of praise and adoration 
would rather keep doing this even in the face of cognitive dissonance, even if we have to engage in profound denial in order to keep the positive song going. Many of us, conversely, who have become cynical with and restless against authority may find such praise intolerable. We may prefer to channel our God talk into endless self-preoccupation, continuing endless lament and complaint. In such a habit, we continually sit in the driver's seat for the relationship, keeping the initiative for ourselves, speaking only in shrill, insistent imperative. That way, taken alone, results in self-indulgence and narcissism, imagining that my grievances are the very center of reality. Thus, without this dialectic of complaint and praise, that is, a dialectic of reconciliation, we end either in denial of self and reality for the sake of God, or in self-indulgence, which trivializes God into our therapist or whipping boy. End quote. Now, what I'm about to read was something that stood out tremendously to me, and it centers around the book of Job and the study of Job's three friends with Job and these unfair things that are happening to Job. And I will tell you that when it comes to reading the book of Job, depending upon where you fall in this self-assertion or self-abandonment, may in fact dictate the way you read that book. And in conversation this week with some extended family, I have realized that the way many of us differ in the way we interpret Job um, is a very direct reflection of this. And so I'm just going to present to you what has captured the essence of the way I grew up thinking about these ideas of boundaries or assertiveness or what it meant to be a faithful follower of Jesus. And so I put myself firmly in this category um, of talking about Job, and then again, I'll I'll wrap it up here and then make some concluding remarks. Quote, Job's friends are a recognizable caricature of the obedient abandonment of self. They are advocates for every kind of obedience and believe that obedience should be in every case unquestioning. They are willing to give themselves over to God at great cost to themselves, indeed at full cost to themselves, in order that, among other things, God's honor and justice should be protected and remain unquestioned. It is inconceivable that Job's friends should ever utter a lament that would assert a right over against God. They are in this way quite unlike Job, who complained freely, who refused to reduce his life to the problem of guilt. Vigorous lament is able to entertain the notion that the breakdown of moral equity may be in the failure of God. Such a possibility the friends will not entertain. And so their obedience without lament is graceless. We may may imagine that such graceless obedience is inappropriate to God. Second, at the other end of the dialectic, we may cite Psalm 106 as an example of a refusal to praise. In this psalm, Israel's entire history is construed as an account of amnesia, ingratitude, and rebellion. Israel is incapable of noticing or crediting God's miracles, and so, of course, being grimly self-preoccupied, they had nothing for which to render to God thanks and praise. Or a personal parallel is the fool in Psalms 9 and 10 who is unable or unwilling to acknowledge God. He says in his heart, there is no God. 
and then undertakes a life of oppressive exploitation. The alternative to self-yielding praise is a self-sufficiency that becomes a law unto itself. These examples show in turn a graceless obedience, Job's friends, incapable of self-asserting lament, but ready to reduce life to formulary submissiveness and praiseless autonomy, Psalms 9, 10, 106, which knows nothing of gratitude and which ends inevitably in exploitation, end quote. Now, I know that may be a lot, and you could go back several minutes on the episode and listen back through what I have just read for you, but I want to explain something that has been pretty profound to me. This section right here of Job's friends being, according to Brueggemann, a recognizable caricature of the obedient abandonment of self is exactly an, um, a pretty unnerving reality. And that is Job's three friends had decided and repeatedly told Job through chapters and chapters of that book that there has to be some type of explanation. Job clearly is in the wrong. God clearly is not in the wrong. God is only good ever. And therefore, if a problem is happening in the world, it must be Job's fault. What Job does throughout the book and us as the reader almost finds it shocking is that Job takes his complaint and his anger and his frustration and his sense that injustice is occurring and he blasts God with that truth. Now, we as the reader know that Job is in fact innocent. And the, re- the, the, the friends don't know this. Job isn't told that Satan has asked God to tempt Job or if, he, if God removes his hedge from him, that Job will not curse him to his face. This whole this whole setup that we're confronted with. But the answer and the question that is occurring in the book of Job, which isn't answered until the very end of the book, is will Job serve God for nothing? Well, Job serving God the way I grew up hearing it was always being thankful and happy and gracious and loving and joyful. But Job is wrestling through a lot of other emotions besides that. Anger, frustration. He asks the Lord to curse the day he was born and to curse his mother's womb. He wishes he's never been alive. And what's fascinating about the book is that at the very end of the book, the Lord approaches Eliphaz, who's one of the three friends, and says to him that he and his two friends have not spoken about the Lord rightly as the Lord's servant Job has. Now, if you read that section in chapter 42 of the book, it's a big fat invitation for you and me to go back in the book of Job and reread everything that Job says and say, how is Job's anger speaking rightly about the Lord? And I have two thoughts about that. The first is that Job, unlike the three friends, speaks to the Lord in his anger and frustration, which is a giant invitation for you and for me through prayer to take every emotion, every feeling, every thought, every care, every concern directly to him in prayer and not just spend our time waxing eloquent to one another about what we think of God and how we think a person's circumstance ought to be applied. Um, This is what the friends did to Job and it infuriated Job because they insisted that Job must have sinned that he didn't know about, that the Lord is now punishing and it's right for the Lord to do so because he only punishes people who deserve it and Job will have none of it. 
And I think that's a part of what it means to be made in the image of God is that we grow into the ability to see injustice and have the same thoughts about it that the Lord has. And this is exactly what Job does. Job is allowed to get angry. He's allowed to be angry when injustice occurs. He is not going to first abandon himself and reduce his life to the fact that he's guilty, God's holy, who are you to complain to God? That's not the picture being communicated. In fact, the Lord invites and welcomes this struggle. And so Brueggemann is, is attempting to defend this, and he pulls out Genesis um, 18 and 22, um, an example of Abraham. And let me just read this for you, and then this will be the last thing I read from, from Brueggemann. But he says, quote, in Genesis 18, Abraham stubbornly and boldly stands up to Yahweh, chastens God about God's propensity to injustice and instructs God in the ways of justice, um, end quote. You might remember the scene when the Lord is about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and Abraham knows that his nephew Lot is in Sodom. And so he pleads with the Lord. He's like, will not the, the judge of all the earth do right? If there are 50 righteous people in the city, are you going to destroy the entire group of 50 just because the city's wicked? Like, will you not spare the city for the sake of these righteous people? And Lord's like, yeah, I'll, I'll spare the city for the sake of these righteous. And then Abraham begins to petition God and plead him down. And he, well, if there's only 45 there, if there's only 40, if there, what is Abraham doing? He is absolutely asserting himself in the presence of God and the Lord is dealing with him. And so let me keep reading just so you know the, the rest of this quote. Quote, Abraham holds his own with Yahweh, at least as an equal partner. In chapter 22, however, this same Abraham is presented as a model of submissive faith, prepared to give up even his own beloved son at the command of God. We would not have expected in chapter 18 that Abraham would be prepared for such obedience. It is my urging, however, that it is precisely the courage of Abraham in chapter 18 that makes possible his radical obedience in chapter 22, end quote. Now, I think this ties together in my mind really, really well. And it's a quote, or it's a, a section Brueggemann pointed out earlier where he said that, um, that the self-assertion precedes self-abandonment. And you have to have a self that you're aware of, that you bring to the table, that you bring to the relationship to say, this is me. I know who I am. I know who you've made me to be. I know what I have to offer this relationship. And now that we both know it, in the face of that, I will then choose to submit to you, but not without first telling you what I actually want. Now, I'll be honest with you. Growing up, I never heard this message. I never heard it in my family. I never heard it in the church. I certainly would never in my wildest dreams have applied this to God. I would have wanted to quote Romans 9, who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God, right? Your, your job is to shut your mouth and to listen to whatever God says. And I would have imagined that in doing so, I was simply denying myself. But I had gotten sucked into a vortex of imagining that the only way to exist was to deny myself. And I did it to such an extent, not, not in, a, in an honorable way, but in a very selfish way. I wouldn't ever assert what I wanted. I still had wants. I still had desires, but I didn't assert them because I felt to do so was wrong, 
Well, guess what happens to those desires and those wants? Do they just go away? Do I feel that justice has happened just because I take another person's perspective? Oh, no. In fact, one of the biggest difficulties with nines on the Enneagram is that they experience intense, low-boiling anger and rage under the surface. Nines, famously and infamously, do really poorly at anger. We do not handle it well because we like to imagine that because of our desire to always please and to always be a peacemaker, that anger isn't really a part of our lives because we've chosen to define the lack of anger as a sign of our humility and of our obedience and of our submissiveness. But you can't fake reality. If there are things that we feel are unjust or we feel that we are always overlooked or always neglected, those desires don't just disappear. They just go underground. They go beneath the surface and at the most inopportune times, they come bursting to the surface. And you throw your hands up in despair because your entire life you feel you've been treated unfairly when in reality nobody around you even knew what your desires were. And so for me, this is a huge step in the right direction. It's a step of acknowledging that God welcomes the prayers. God welcomes the self-assertion, the laments, the full assertion of self over against God, as well as the praise the full abandonment of ourselves to God. But the message I got in the church, and I will use myself as the example, but I will say that it is my conviction that my church, as well as many other churches, tend to elevate the abandonment part over the self-assertion part. Meaning in the church, it is much more acceptable to praise God fully abandoning oneself to what he wants in our lives than it is to lament or to assert ourselves over against God. In fact, if I had heard a preacher preach on a lament psalm and preach it the way it's actually written, there'd be a lot of people squirming in their seats waiting for the, you know, um, the the um, the lightning bolt to strike the pastor, right? The proverbial lightning bolt to strike the pastor because of the audacity of the things that would be pouring forth from that pulpit. We tend to imagine that God just wants us to play the role of submissive person and not actually be able to assert our own rights. And yet, if that relationship took form in a human marriage, for example we would rightly call that an abusive relationship. One partner always asserts their dominance and the other person is always asked to submit no matter what happens. We would rightly call that abusive and we would be right because in relationship, it is always a give and take. It is always a back and forth. And you know, Moses does this as well in the book of Exodus. When the Lord says to Moses, step aside, I'm going to destroy this people and I will make a nation out of you, Moses. And what does Moses do? He asserts himself before God. He says, no, you won't. What are the nations going to say? What are the Egyptians going to say? You made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You can't back out of that promise. Moses asserts himself in the face of God and God's like, hmm, okay, I won't. And I feel like for far too long, we've sort of 
theologized God to such an extent that we don't really think he's relating with human beings the way the Bible portrays him as relating with human beings. Yes, human beings can freely assert themselves before God, can truly express their deepest longings, their deepest angers, their senses of injustice, and know that the Lord will hear them. But if you tuck that away and imagine that as a follower of Jesus, you aren't the kind of person who sees life as unfair. You aren't the kind of person who would have the audacity to tell God off for the things that are happening in your life that you don't think are fair. Then you are not opening yourself up to the presence of Jesus at those deepest, vulnerable, most vulnerable places in your life. And I personally think that the church as a whole has done such a poor job of of understanding both this self-assertion and self-abandonment. Again, they've elevated the self-abandonment. It's okay to praise the Lord, but it is not okay to express how angry or how disappointed or how disgusted or how unfair you are, you think God is toward you or toward this world. You're not allowed to do that. that. That's not healthy in so many religious places. And I would like to submit to you that this is one of the main reasons I think that the church has done such a poor job of caring for victims. The church is not interested in hearing the stories of people who have legitimate um, claims of a time when they wanted to be self-assertive. It is not comfortable for many Christians to hear a person complaining about their law in life or complaining about injustice. We don't know what to do with it because we've never learned how to engage God himself in these kinds of settings. And so we have no capacity to understand what it's like to engage another person when they have a legitimate complaint against us or against someone who has, you know, wronged them or who has harmed them. We want to get past that uncomfortable stuff quickly and thoroughly and usher them right into the the praising of Jesus part for, for bringing this idea into mind. So we love it when a person shares a tragic testimony that ends in all praise going to Jesus. But if a person is in the middle of that tragic testimony and they have no silver lining on the other side and the grass is not greener, Um, or I guess the grass is greener on the other side, but they're not on that side. They're in the middle of the difficulty. It makes us uneasy because I don't think we are fully free to self-assert. Instead, we're still stuck in this self-abandonment. And Brueggemann does go on to talk quite a bit about the fact that people do. They they tend to go in one of two directions and you either can fully embrace this self-assertion or you can fully embrace this self-abandonment, but neither one is true to the self and neither one is a true picture of what it means to covenant together in relationship. It's always, here's my perspective. I know this is your perspective. I want you to hear my perspective and then I want to hear yours and I want us to figure out a way forward. I would propose to you that this is exactly what Jesus does with the father in the garden of Gethsemane. Jesus asserts himself, my father, if it is possible let this cup pass from me. That's absolute self-assertion. And he does it first. This is what I want. If it's possible, please make this happen. Why? Because this is what I want. But not my will, but yours be done. Self-abandonment. Self-assertion. This is what I want, but I will submit to you now that I know you know what I want to happen I will still submit to you because I trust you 
We are in relationship together. We are in covenant together. And so for me, I'm learning. I am learning what it means to put boundaries in place. I am learning how to read the Psalms and listen deeply for the emotion and the anger or the joy or the exhilaration or the fear or the anxiety that is surfacing in the authors as they write. I'm working on receiving people who are assertive and being thankful for their ability to speak clearly and plainly. And then I'm asking the Holy Spirit to lead me in the ability to speak assertively so that I'm not only aware of what I think, but so are those with whom I am in relationship. And then as I continue to teach and preach and lead in the church, I want to give us all the space and the place to work these things out together, to figure out what to do what and when and how. But I think it's a lopsided game right now. And so I do think that it is important and vital for the church to begin to learn how to engage the Lord in these ways so that we are able to engage our world in these ways. Because as you know, and as I've talked about on the podcast quite a bit, the white conservative evangelical church is not prepared to have people in our culture or in our churches um, who are self-asserting injustices and harms that have been done against them, sometimes at the hands of the church, the church as a whole has proven completely incapable of allowing those self-assertions to stand. We want to sweep them aside. We want to bring forward all the good because we don't want to imagine that the relationships we've created have proven to be extensions of anything except our self-abandonment to God. And the fact that we elevate ourselves to that extent and expect the world to see it that way is a testimony to the fact that we have not learned how to rightly covenant together with God. It's a two-way street. And this is new to me, but I believe that it resonates deeply with reality. It resonates deeply with my own personal experience, my own relationship with my family, my relationship with my wife, what my counselor has been attempting to communicate to me, and how I see the truths of who and what Jesus has come to be about and to preach and to teach and to show us is completely consistent with a life that wants us to fully express ourselves, right? Not just in whatever we think is right, but we're able to give to God what we think about life's and its situations for the purpose of preparing ourselves to be able to be self-abandoning in our obedience. I feel like without the self-assertion, the self-obe- the, the obedience that we're, that we're offering to God is just half-hearted at best because we're not getting to the depths of what's actually going on in the human heart. Instead, we stay close to the surface where we don't let our anger show or we don't let our frustration show, right? You don't do those things in church, you know? Church is the place where you put on a smile and no matter how you feel, when someone asks, hey, how are you? You say, well, I'm blessed. Or you say, I'm better than I deserve. Or you say all these things because you think that's what you should say. You know, well, when's the next time you're gonna walk into church and somebody says, hey, how you doing? And you're like, I feel like crap today. That would be a little bit of self-assertion. Why? Because you do feel like crap. And when are we going to be able to find the freedom in the church to have somebody say, this is how I really feel 
and then have somebody else in the church who asked that question sit with us. Ask us to talk about what's going on in our lives and give us the space to realize that when life really is crappy, it's okay to feel crappy. When life does not make sense, it's okay for life not to make sense. When life feels unfair, it's okay to say that because that's exactly what's going on. And I think that God, as he shows in the book of Job anyway, is honored by that type of honesty. He wants honesty. And I'd rather be honest and be a person who has to tell him that I'm filled with a lot of resentment and bitterness and I don't feel like loving that person right now. And I don't really feel like reaching out to that person who's hurt me for the 14th time. And I really don't want to forgive that person here. Those are self-assertive statements. They're not arrogant and rude. They're simply telling God the truth about what's going on in our hearts and in our lives. And it's only when we can begin to grow comfortable with him enough to tell him the truth, that the truth will be able to set us free. And that's what I want for you. And that's what I want for myself. And so again, I know this has left it kind of open-ended. This is point one, embracing both self-assertion as well as self-abandonment. And I guess the, the way Brueggemann puts it, lament concerns the full assertion of self over against God and praise concerns the full abandonment of self to God. And that's the line we need to walk. That's the balance and the tension. Um, We just need to know when to do what, and that's ultimately what he's calling us to do. So that's all I have for you for this week. I'm really thankful that you are tuning in. Please share the podcast with a friend or two this week. If you haven't left me a rating or a review on Apple iTunes, I would love for you to do that. Um, you can email me at unbindingthebible at gmail.com. Several of you have found me on Facebook. I'm on Instagram as well at the Unbinding the Bible podcast. And it's great to interact with many of you. And I hope you have a fantastic week. And I will talk to you next time.